Hi, my name is Jack. I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic. Oh boy. I thought about this the last two days, what I was going to say, so what I might say. You know, my younger life was kind of chaotic. You know, I had a, I lived in an alcoholic and drug related base family. So, every day, so, you know, no matter how I looked at it, when I went into my house, you seen either one. And so it was quickly the demise that, you know, I attracted to the drug part. That's part of my story. But, you know, when I come to meetings in Alcoholics Anonymous, I sit there and say other things because sometimes it offends people. And, uh, but yeah, it's, I didn't like the drinking. I tried it when I was younger. Oh, to taste the beer was appalling. It was gross. You know, and, but when my mom and dad and all the other neighbors had their block parties, you know, I learned quickly how to make a, a Seagram 7 on the rocks, you know, with just water and stuff. That was my mom's drink. She goes, hey, kid, go make me a drink, you know. <laughs> so I learned at an early age, like, how to fetch a beer for my dad and make my mom her drinks. <laughs> and... uh Pretty much the things were chaotic by third, you know, I was getting rebellious early in life. I mean, I was probably the only kid in the neighborhood playing with her Tonka trucks and I was stoned, you know, at 10 years old. So, but that, you know, that played along for a while, and and I kept trying to try alcohol, and I just shied away. I hated the taste. You know, I, I, I even hated the taste of the whiskey and stuff. I don't know why. It just didn't settle in on me, but... There was a turning point when, at 18 years old, that scared the, uh, the willies out of me. Is when I had me and some other friends, we got caught. Uh, we were in an incident, and it ended up we were in preliminary hearing with the judge. And I remember the judge saying, he goes, if I had my way, I'm going to put you with your brother. And my brother was in prison already. And I'm like 18 years old. Like, I got to change my life. I got to make some decisions here to make it better. And I did. I, I pushed away a lot of people. And at the same time, I was thrown out of public school and went. I had to pay to go to Catholic school to get my diploma. I did the reversal. Well, usually it's the other way around. And it was the best move ever because 
I learned discipline uh, when I struggled with some of my classes, they were there. But the, in the whole time, I was still getting, I was still getting high. And then graduation time came, and they sat there, and I said, you know what, I'll, I'll drink with you when we go to the shore. And they go, oh, well, you'll be passed out in the first hour. I said, don't, and in my back of my head, it was like making a challenge. I'm like, I'm going to tell you why, guys. You'll be passed out before I will. And I said, I'll bet 20 on it. And I meant it. And we got done, and, you know, I got myself, like, four cases of beer. And I looked at him, and I said, be prepared to get buried. And I hated beer before that. But I don't know what flipped. Maybe, you know, with the thing with the courtroom or the challenge from my friends. But just that quick, I had switched my addiction to alcohol and didn't think twice about it. You know, for them seven days down at the beach, I stayed drunk along with other things. And I, and I held true, like, four, three of those guys were passed out in the tables and on the floor, and I was still going. You know, I, <laughs> I mean, I know that's nothing to be proud of. You know, being a power drinker and drinking to the, you know, everybody else is done. And that's when I realized I was in trouble. Because now I switched to something that was easier to obtain. I could go to a beer distributor and buy a case of beer. I lived in Pennsylvania, so we didn't have grocery stores with alcohol in. You had to go to a beer distributor. And, you know, I always had beer in my refrigerator, always. I had one that one little compartment, what was supposed to be fruits and vegetables, but it was cans of beer. <laughs> and uh, like it progressed fast. Like I remember arguing with my dad. I wrecked the car and arguing with my father. And I remember one day he was taking me back to work, and we, he was bitching at me, and I'm like you know, why don't you just do me a favor and get out of my life? You know, he went and picked up a new car and went home, walked in the front door and went into a coma. I was the last family member to talk to him, and that got to me. You know, I think that that excelled my drinking to no end. You know, it, it was like, pardon the language, but it was like balls to the walls every time I drank. And because sometimes I thought I was mad at myself for saying what I did or maybe the loss of him early in my life. I don't know. But 
my drinking went from, you know, mediocre addict to, to, to the extreme. You know, the big book talks about the different types of alcoholics. I was the extreme. You know, I, I went there fast. And, uh, and then I thought, well, well, my girlfriend at the time got pregnant. I'm like, well, okay, well, kid will make me calm down. I'll get married and get responsible and get a job and, you know, things will calm down. I'll, I'll go down to being normal drinking or something. And that didn't work. You know, it worked for a little bit, but, you know, having a wife and kids and stuff really didn't stop my, really didn't slow down my drinking. You know, I, I just, like, when I couldn't leave the house and I had to help her or something, I just drank at home a lot more. And um, I still did the other stuff, but not too much, you know, like, I'd say by, by, by 21, you know, the other stuff, uh, pot was kind of secondary in the background. Like, alcohol was my number one, you know, in, in the, on the chart. And um, I just pounded away, and I didn't care. I was a very greedy, selfish extreme drunk. I didn't care about nobody's feelings. I didn't care who I hurt. You know, I showed, I showed no respect in any way to basically a lot of people because it meant nothing. I would not go to someone's house unless they had alcohol. I wouldn't go to Christmas parties. It's like I used to look at my wife and go, no, you can go over for the Christmas party. I'll stay home. She goes, why? And I'm like, well, they don't got alcohol over there. That's going to be boring. <laughs> you know? And, you know, that was my thinking and mentality, that alcohol thinking and mentality, how it, I, as I say, like, king alcohol. Every time I feel, like, every time I feel he got a chance, he took a bigger chunk of me and absorbed me more and more. You know, until there was no return. You know, I couldn't escape the grip. And uh, I knew I was in trouble. In my life, that's uh, that's why when I came into the program, I had no qualms. With I was powerless over alcohol. I knew that many years before I walked in the door. You know, I was a functional drunk. I kept the job all the way through the whole thing. I went to work sometimes late, 
but I went to work. And I did my job. You know, and at times I like driving, like sometimes I'd be good at driving. And then there were times like, remember one time they told me I left the bar and back home they have the side streets and they told me I sideswiped three cars. I don't remember ever doing it, but that's what they told me I did. You know, I was never caught for it. Uh, so that was like, that's when I realized I was getting into the, to the blackout drunks. Like, uh-oh. Like, the harder they're drunk, the harder it is to remember, you know, what I did. And that was like really, really starting to scare me a little. Didn't slow me down, but it made me scared a little, you know. And uh, it's like I would go out and get drunk, and for three days, when there were sometimes I couldn't tell you what bars I was at or towns, because I didn't know. But you know, when I came in here, Alcoholics Anonymous the first time I accepted the basic policy of Alcoholics Anonymous you know I, I was powerless over alcohol and, and my life was unmanageable I could accept that <coughs> you know and two you know, that, that belief in coming to believe in a power greater than yourself can restore your sanity. I kind of, like, pushed in that away because I couldn't get a grasp on it. I remember hiding in the closet when it came time on a Sunday when I was a kid. So I went, you know, so thinking that Mom wouldn't find me, so I wouldn't have to go to Sunday school. I just despised it, like even walking in to the place. I don't ever know where that came from, but when I was a kid, it was, it was pretty strong feelings about that. And finally, my mom said, well, if you don't want to go, then you don't have to go. You know, that's why when I came in the first time in Alcoholics Anonymous, step two and going into step three, it was a hard struggle because there was no kind of base there, you know, of a higher power. You know, I had the belief that if I didn't see it in front of me, I don't believe it. If that makes any sense. And I did good, you know. I like tried to be a good husband and stuff like that and and I really worked hard at it. I mean, 
went with friends with AA. We played cards at night, you know, and stuff like that. I really tried to get involved with them and, and be, you know, a participant. I made a lot of friends through it. But in the back of my head, I had a lot of reservation and I didn't believe. I just didn't believe in certain parts of what was in the book. You know, as far as the steps. And I remember one night arguing with my wife about money and she said the magic words. I remember, I remember a week earlier getting my one-year coin. I struggled like hell and I did get a one-year coin. And I remember a little bit after that, we were arguing about money and this and that in the house. And she sat there and blurted across the room. She goes, you know, I like you better drunk. I didn't say one word. I just went, grabbed my flannel shirt, and said, see ya. I went out the door, and I didn't come home for three days. And when I did come home, I smelled pretty bad. I was, I was toasted drunk. And, and just that quick, I pissed away the whole year that I had gained before. And not long after that, we parted our own separate ways. And that's when I knew I didn't have to, like, put up a front and please anybody. Then I even drink more. The blackouts became more frequent. You know, uh, being late for work became more frequent. You know, absenteeism and... Like, I could see the progression of it getting really, really nasty. And then I remember it was like four years later because uh, it was like I remember I had a blackout. I was in a blackout drunk. I remember being at my house Thursday. I remember getting in the car, going to the bank and cashing, and I remember drinking at a bar in my hometown. And like, I could not remember past that point. And, and I, when I come to realize I woke up in like Dewey Beach, Delaware in another state, my car's in a sand dune. And there's another woman by my side and there's a pistol in the center and I'm like oh shit where am I at like I'm see I'm hearing water and I'm like oh man and I'm like I got three questions who are you where am I at and what day is this and I didn't realize five days I was in that blackout trunk how I drove on the highway. You know, how I was coherent to not get caught by, by law is beyond me to this day. Like, like, I remember sitting there saying, well, look, 
here's money, go for the gas. You go in and pay for the gas. So I took off and left her there. And then the way over the bridge, I threw the pistol out the window because I didn't want to know what happened. I did or die. And I knew I was close to my breaking point. I knew the end was near. I felt it. You know, the kidneys were starting to hurt. Uh, you know, there, there was, I started getting moments of pissing blood. And, you know, they were all signs that started catching my eye and like, uh-oh. And then finally, work backed me into a corner and said, well, look, you know we're going to cover the cost. You need to go get help. And I'm like, I went out drinking that weekend. And I remember walking down to the house to my, when I, where I lived with my mom. But before I left that weekend, I took a shotgun shell and chambered it and loaded it and I put it underneath my pillow. You know, my mom wasn't there at the time. She went away. So I was sitting there thinking like, well, I'll just come home Sunday night and I'll end it. I don't have to drink no more. You know, and uh, but what was weird is a half a block up from my house, the ironic thing is the AA house, the clubhouse. And I'm walking down the street, and it's weird. Like, I didn't even hesitate. I looked in and seen people in there and realized, okay, it was the 8 o'clock meeting at night, and I didn't hesitate. I walked in to the Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, like, really, really drunk. Like, someone came up and goes, you want me to get you a cup of coffee? I'm like, yeah. And then I knew this one guy from before and stuff, Drew, which he became my sponsor. And he goes, looks like you have something to say. And I'm like, yeah. I said, y'all took about this God of your understanding and how great and powerful he is. I said, let him help me now because I'm more than willing to listen. And like three guys sat with me and talked with me and, and like, did the 12-step thing, and I'm like, I know guys, I said, I was in the program for a year, I was, you know, did things with you, I said, look, at this time, I'm not going to fight nobody, I said, you know, I need help, and I need it now, and that's when two guys, you know, and put me in a car, and they drove me down to Warnersville, you know, to the treatment center, to the detox center. And that was pretty scary because the first night, it was worse than a hospital. You have a steel table, everything is mounted to the floor. Like, you're in a bed, they put the rails up, and like, every 30 minutes you have this nurse coming by going, looking in the window, you know, to see if you're alive. Because I was going through the shakes and everything. And uh, going back a little bit, in my house, I used to have two bottles of NyQuil, liquid. 
And I used to wake up in the middle of the night with uh, the leaving Las Vegas, Nicholas Cage, when he's shaking, walking to the refrigerator. I used to walk to the medicine cabinet, pour myself two shots of NyQuil, and then get my way back to bed, and it would take away the shakes. And, and it was weird. My ex-wife used to sit there and say, well, the NyQuil bottle's almost empty. <laughs> you know? But uh, moving forward again, I remember... Then they put me in with, you know, a group and everything. And for 28 days, I was in, you know, with a group of people. And, you know, they walked us through a lot of things. And there was a, a, a really cool priest there. I mean, out of all the religion, you know, this, this Catholic priest, he was, like, so cool. He, he was an addict himself, you know. He used to, I guess he used to drink the church's wine way a lot more than he, everyone thought. <laughs> and and uh, Father Bill, like, I used to talk, he took a liking to me, and I took a liking to him, like I could trust him. And, you know, I, now and then I would, like, sit there and talk with him one-on-one. And I remember it was about two weeks in, and the head counselor looked at me and goes, you either start doing work and stop lying to us and start doing work and trying to, and trying to work on your recovery or we're going to throw you out. You got one day to think about it. And I went back to my room and I'm like, game's over. You know, I got to get honest with these people. And, you know, the next day in class I started opening up. And, and telling them a lot of things about me, you know, my drinking patterns and stuff like that. And, and it was a blessing because, he, and then I did what they call temporary fifth, fourth step. And I did, I did that with Father Bill while I was there. And I often say, when I went to go home, I left part of Jack on the top of the mountain. Because I was some, I was different when I came off that mountain. You know, I was scared. You know, I was scared to go back to my hometown. The, the blinking lights of the bar rooms and stuff like that, like, oh shit. You know, I gotta walk to the store and walk by the bar. Ugh. And I used to figure ways of how to not walk by the places, like walk in the alleys to go to the store or something, you know, and uh, because I really wanted to stay sober. You know, so whatever I said at that, when I said that at that meeting, you know, because I'm more than willing to listen, I don't know, I sit there and say today, That's when Jack's way stopped, you know, and my higher power, the Lord's way stepped in. That was it. He took over right then and there. He goes, you had your way, now I'm going to show you mine. 
and I really think it was like that because the story talks about a gradual growth. And then the, then the slam awakening, like getting blasted, like blasted with reality and, and things change quickly. Well, for me, it changed quickly. And um, that's when I started hanging out with people, asking a lot of questions. You know, I did the right thing. I got a sponsor, uh, started working on my steps and working them honestly. You know, and uh, with the second step, I, I, for me, I had to break it down in segments. It's like, first I came, you know, I had to show up. Then I came too, then the fog started lifting from all the drunken stuff. You know, the head was getting clearer. And then came to believe, you know, I, be I believed in the group. I believed in the people in the group. You know, as my source of strength and power and come to believe that a power greater than myself can restore my to me sanity and then they started explaining to me about how to establish a God of my understanding to suit me you know and like and that's how they got it to me and you know and I'm glad you know, and, I, and it worked. You know, because in a short time, I started, I realized I had a God of my understanding. You know, and I would sit there and say the best prayers possible. It's like, well, I'm going to have a hard day today. You know, be with me. And You know, I took a layoff from my job, a leave of absence. I remember when they called me back and they said, do you, I called them and said, hey, this is Jack. I'm terminating my position because I can't work there. And they go, why? I'm like, well, certain circumstances. I didn't want to sit there and say people were bringing coolers of beer to the work line and snorting stuff on the toilet lids and stuff like that. It's like, I didn't want to say that to them. So I said, look, I can't do it. I can't work there no more. And that's when I knew I started taking my, my recovery more serious. Because if I was willing to give up 14 years of seniority to stay sober, that's when I knew okay, I'm on the right path, you know, and, and things are going to get better. And it did. And I was with enough people, and they were really cool. It's like every, like, they used to, we used to go to Akron, Ohio for Founders Day. So when I would go there, I would, like, go to certain meetings, you know, to try to learn more. And it was a whole weekend worth of meetings. And about 
and about 20,000 people, which was a rush, you know, meeting people from all over the place. And uh, that's what those, them people used to do. That's how they were helping me, you know. And uh, they were a big help, that group. You know, they had the nickname Animal House, you know, because sometimes it was a little nutty. But I think the message they taught was strong and clear, you know, about staying clean, you know. Then people were there when you needed them. And, uh, and I remember when I was struggling, too, in the beginning, because I was like, so enraged, and this was when I was at treatment, and I remember Father Bill going, wait a minute. And then he went and goes, he opened up the book, and he goes, now I'm going to read something to you. He goes, one morning, however, I realized I had to get rid of it, for all my reprieve was running out. If I didn't get rid of it, I was going to get drunk. I didn't want to drink anymore. In my prayers that morning, I asked God to point out to me some way to be free of my of this resentment. During the day, a friend of mine brought me some magazines to take. Brought me some magazines to take to the hospital group. I was I was interested in. I looked through them, and a banner across the one feature in an article by a prominent clergyman in which I caught the words resentment, it said, in effect, if you have a resentment, you want to be free of it, free of, if you, if you will pray for that person or thing that you resent, you will be free. If you, if if you will ask in prayer for everything you want for yourself to be given to them, you will be free. Ask for their health, their prosperity, their happiness, and you will be free. Even, even when you don't really want it for them, and your prayers are only words, and you don't mean it, go ahead and do it anyway. Do it every day for two weeks and you will find out you will find you will have come to to mean it and you will want it for them and you will realize that where you you used to feel bitterness and resentment and hatred you now feel compassionate understanding and love that hit hard you know it was like a slap in the face for me and uh Ever since then, like, if I get in a tight jam, one of the things I like to do is, like, back off. And in, and in my own little way, say a prayer. Like, allow me to, like, not get out of hand or say anything nasty. You know, let's approach this in a nice way, if possible. And uh, it didn't always work in my time and it's now 30 years 
since I said that saying that night in the, in the bar, in, you know, in the meeting, it's 30 years without a drink. When it's 30 years with words like that, and people by your side, that I'm sober today. I am free. I was given freedom from something that was hideous and it meant to destroy me. And, and in my time in life, I lost a lot of friends through drinking and other things. And uh, a lot of people have gone that they're not around no more. You know, uh, and it hit a home because 10 years ago, my brother died in a nursing home at 54 years old. He ravaged his body with alcohol and drugs. You know, he could have had all the help in the world, my brother. It was there for the taking. He turned his back on it. He did it his way. And, and you know, his way put him in a grave. I'm alive today. Because I took the I, I took the risk and became willing to to listen to other recovering alcoholics and say when I first kicked the second time coming in, it's like how in the hell you stay sober for five years? How do you stay sober for 10 years? How do you do it for two years? You're smiling. You know, and I wanted to know how they did that. Because that's what I wanted. I wanted to learn how to smile. You know, and have fun with people. You know, truly have fun. And it took AA for me to discover that and find that. Uh, AA gave me a lot of tools for survival out in the real world. I come to a meeting for one hour, but what I get here, I have to put in practice 23 hours out there. And that's not always easy. You know, and uh, so that's why I say I'm a grateful alcoholic because I am grateful. I am truly grateful that people came and said, all right, we'll help you. We'll show you the way. Well, what are you confused about? You know, let's look in the book. And, you know, my sponsor back there, Drew, God bless that guy. You know, he's in his, well, he's probably in his, 40s now, as far as years sobriety. Yeah, you know, he. I used to call him up raving maniac, like boiling. I'm like, Drew, this is this, this. He goes, I got a question for you. Did you drink today? No. Well, then you had a good day. And he said it in a calm voice. And I used to sit there like, I had the perfect sponsor because he knew how to he knew how to diffuse Jack in a quick way and calm me down. 
they say every, you know, you know, if you search in this program, if you, if you, you'll know when it's the right guy. When I often say, you'll know it's the right sponsor when he knows you, when he can just look at you and know something's wrong. Like they can see right into you, and I and I think I got lucky there. You know, with him. And uh, over the years, I've chaired meetings and things like that, and uh, like treasury back at home. And I helped with the maintenance of the building. I did whatever I could for that group. You know, the floor was weak. I reinforced the floor with beams and poles and stuff. You know, I went to any length to help that group because that's where I got sober. And when I went back for my son's wedding this year, I went in there twice for two meetings. And it's a little different. The building, you know, needs some attention. And all new faces. Very few of the old faces. Like a lot of them are dead. Like they have a plaque on the wall recognizing the people that were there for a lot of years. And uh, and it was weird. I moved here, and I did not know there was a Alcoholics Anonymous meeting in Tonopah. I was here maybe six months. And then I kept going in town to West Valley, and someone goes, well, you know there's a meeting out by you. No, there ain't. Yeah, there is. It's over at the church, and he gave me directions. And I'm like, oh, how cool is that? A meeting about four miles from my house. You know, and uh, and cool people. You know, I learned that there's a lot of neat sobriety that comes through this meeting. You know, you know they come and go, and And I'm very grateful for like my for like my group back there, and I'm very grateful for this group being where they are. I know every Thursday there's an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting waiting for me. You know, and you can't ask for more. So I'm just gonna sit down and close with, you know, I thank y'all for uh, being there. Because without you, I would have never made it. That's all.